what I stand for and what we stand for is making sure that the healthy is in high performance. And we actually can have both. And we know that most people are struggling with this at the moment. We have record levels of reported burnout. We have record levels of chronic stress. We have not made a dent in our mental illness stats, despite all the research and resources that have been thrown at it in the last few years. We still have one in five of us or 20% of us in any one time in any one year with a diagnosable mental illness. And so we're still not getting that balance right of how we prioritise ourselves without fear of underperformance. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Download the app today. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast, the show that helps crack open your heart and inspire a deeper regard for your own well-being and happiness. Proudly brought to you by 28 Essentials. Here's your host, the gorgeous Kim Morrison. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast. This week we have a beautiful soul, someone I'm really excited to share with you, amazing Fleur Hazelwood. This soul is a leadership expert, a keynote speaker, and the founder of the Blueberry Institute. Now, this woman partners with leaders to create highly high-performing teams. She's known for building positive performance cultures that deliver both well-being and commercial results. She's trained over 3,000 people in positive leadership, future fit resilience, and mental health mastery. With over 20 years corporate leadership experience, Fleur has led many successful organizational turnarounds and culture transformations. This woman understands firsthand the challenges of change, uncertainty, team stress, and top talent burnout. Her clients value her accessibility, practicality, and skilled use of lessons that work in real life. You will get to hear examples of this in today's show and also just how powerful many of the corporate teachings and lessons cross over and even sit on top of our beautiful personal lives. Now, Fleur works with many high-profile organizations, including the Department of Veteran Affairs, Woolworths, 3M, ITW Construction, Goodman Fielder, many, many others, also Mental Health Commission of New South Wales. I think it's really important that you get to understand this woman has hit the bottom of bottoms, has had incredible burnout, and because of that, maybe is what pushed her into making sure other people don't go through the same things. She's backed by extensive qualifications, including a Master's of Coaching Psychology, Bachelor of Commerce, and Company Director's Certificate. She's also a qualified yoga therapy and mindfulness teacher, which is incorporated into her personal well-being and health practices. You're going to love her books. The first one, Resilience Recipes, A Practical Guide to Better Personal Well-Being, which won the Health and Well-Being Book of 2022. And she also has her follow-up book, Leader Wellbeing, which is a leader's guide to mental health conversations at work, which helps leaders support the psychological safety and mental health of their teams. Honestly, it's such a beautiful conversation. And like I said, whether or not you're in an entrepreneurial position, leadership 
leadership position or you are the CEO or CFO of a company, it doesn't matter where you sit. This is a really beautiful conversation and understanding the crossover of this whole thing that we call work-life balance. I know you're going to love it. I know you're going to absolutely want to take notes or make sure that you share this, maybe even with your boss, with leaders that you know, maybe family members that work their butts off, but you don't want to see them burn out in the process. You're going to love everything about her just as much as I do. And I cannot wait to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback where you can go on over to my Instagram page, Kim Morrison and the number 28. You can go to my Facebook page, Kim Morrison Training, or go to thewellnesscouch.com forward slash self-love podcast. Thank you for your five-star rating. Please keep sharing this and make sure you read these beautiful books and share the podcasts over the summer break. It's the perfect time to fuel our minds and refill it with absolute positivity, beautiful strategy, and amazing embodiment of what it means to be a human being in this day and age. Thank you so much for being on the ride with me. I know you're going to love today's show. Take care, be kind. Well, you're well-versed to understanding that each week I get the absolute pleasure and opportunity to interview the most incredible souls, people who show us their true selves and also inspire us to be our best selves. I'd love to welcome this week a beautiful soul, the gorgeous Fleur Hazelwood. Thank you so much for joining us on the Self Love Podcast. Kim, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Look, we have had some great conversations off air, and I think it's really important that the listener understands just how extraordinary you are, all the incredible work you've done on yourself. For those who haven't heard of you and are interested to know your background, could you take us on a little journey as to where you began and then what brought you down this pathway into doing the incredible work that you're doing today? I guess the best probably place to start when describing what I care about and what I do and I guess what I I bring and care passionately about bringing to the people that I touch is that I started my career journey in that classic corporate A-type burnout, climb the ladder type of structure and I went from a graduate trainee following uni, uh, learning the ropes, worked through sales, production, marketing, general management, and eventually made it to, to CEO. And one of the things that I learned along the way is that I'm extremely um, determined. So determination, courage, that whole mind over matter was very much a characteristic of my trajectory and being a young female in quintessentially male industries so production food manufacturing um, those kind of like large blue chip global organizations I faced a lot of discrimination you can't do this you're too young females don't behave like that and so what I found was that spurred me on to prove to people that they were wrong, that age didn't matter and that female was a strength and not a weakness. But what I ended up doing was working chronically long hours, 
overachieving on even the smallest things. So I wasn't great at prioritization. And I like to share with people that uh, I describe myself as having a personal PhD in burnout. And so for me, my, I guess my defining career moment was as a CEO of a textile company um, through the global financial crisis. And I was running a small company for a large group of group of companies and I was given the directive when the world kind of stopped and people weren't buying things like cushions and table linen and, and bed linen. They were more focused on how they were going to navigate the economic and financial insecurity. So when the sales um, dried up, I was given the directive that I needed to take 30% out of our headcount. And there were two things that I had a significant problem with around that. The first was we had a workforce that included a number of people in our factory, so we did manufacturing as well as distribution, that had been with the business for in excess of 20 years. And I looked at it and went, they've done the right thing by us. This is certainly not the right thing by them. And given the current economic climate and the way that Australia was contracting or manufacturing, I also knew that even one of these jobs was lost meant that someone was going to lose their livelihood in its entirety. The other point that I really struggled with as well was strategically it didn't make sense as well. So reducing 30% of headcount didn't actually mean that we would reduce production capacity by 30%. It meant we'd actually reduce production capacity by 50%. And so when the market did pick up, we would not be in a place to be able to regain our growth and pick up pick up sales again. So from both a, a human perspective as well as a business impact perspective, it didn't make sense to me. One of the things that I was fortunate with was because I was the smallest company in the business, I realised that as long as I got my numbers to, to balance, they weren't going to look too closely at how I did it. And I actually worked out that we could possibly navigate for around 10 months if everyone within the business agreed to work an eight-day week instead of a, sorry, an eight-day fortnight or a four-day week as opposed to a five-day week and and 10-day fortnight. And the legal advice that was given to me was, well, this is way too a high-risk strategy. If one person, every single person needs to voluntarily agree to the change and if there's one single person that disagrees, then you'll trigger an offer of redundancies that you need to provide everyone and you can't afford to to do that. Your, Your small business will go bust. And I sat on that for a while and I thought about it from a values perspective, a human perspective, and what was the right thing to do by people as well as the right thing to do by business. And I went, you know what, if you treat people well and you're transparent, then I believe that people will also do the right thing by you. And so for me, the defining moment of my career and where I get my belief in that healthy and high performance go together came when I was shaking like an absolute leaf. I walked down to our factory and into our canteen area and called all of our 
factory and distribution staff together, so just under under 100 people. And I started to talk and I said, hey, guys, I don't know what is going to be happening with this global financial crisis. I don't know how long our sales are going to be sick for, but I do have an idea and I do have a plan and I believe that if we work together, then we'll be able to navigate these next few months and everyone will have some some work. Would you like to to join me on this on this particular journey? And uh, the thing that was um, quite hilarious was they said, Flo, we can't hear you. And so I had to stand up on the middle of a table in the canteen and re, I guess, you know, re, re, redo my little little speech again and feeling all of these sets of eyes on me. And when I got to the end of it, the person that represented the Chinese community came through and said, Flo, we don't exactly understand what you mean, but can we have a have have some moment a moment to talk together and then the main english speaking representative of the indian community in in our company came forward and said you know Fleur, we don't actually really understand what you're talking about either but um can we have some time to think about it and so here i am standing on the top of the canteen while everyone's gone into these little huddles and pretty much said we don't understand a word of what you're saying and in the middle of me i guess putting forward the most personally high-risk strategy of my my career. When the groups came back, I almost burst into tears because the messaging that came back from every single different group was, Flo, we don't actually really understand what it is that you say, but we believe you and we trust you. And if you think that this is going to be the best way for all of us, we are happy to sign that piece of paper. And so I had a queue of 97 people all standing up and one by one saying to me, I trust you and stand, and signing the voluntary piece of paper that meant on a rolling basis that they would have 20% less work and 20% less wages for the period of time that it took us to, to navigate through through that particular traumatic, traumatic and tough, tough trading time. And every week I would meet with the staff for close to nine months to talk about where we're at, what we could do, whether we could do some more work that week or whether we had to drop some work that week. And one of the things I'm most proud of is that when we got through to the end of the global financial crisis, my little company, so I was 20 million, the largest company in the group was 150 million, came through and returned the highest profit, retained every single staff member. And while we dropped in sales, we grew our market share and we grew our ranging across all of our retailers. And so I have a really, really strong belief that being good to people is also being good for business. Now, from a personal perspective, um, working through that for 18 months, um, I was working round the clock. 100, 120 hour weeks. So while I was looking after my staff, there was a whole bunch of politics going on at board level and I was being bullied by the outgoing managing director. I was having issues with the finance manager who thought that they should have had my my role. And I was dealing with all of the firefighting, you know, things that, that happened with retailers cancelling orders and having to renegotiate trading terms and renegotiating what kind of orders we could be doing. So while the company came through that particular period of time in really great shape, 
I certainly didn't. And I ended up experiencing extremely debilitating burnout from both a mental illness and a physical illness perspective. And it took me probably close to two years to bring my health back and work out what my place within high achievement and high performance was, but also what I needed to do in terms of ensuring that my health and well-being was, was, was okay. And so since then, with the Blueberry Institute, what I stand for and what we stand for is making sure that the healthy is in high performance. And we actually can have both, and we know that most people are struggling with this at the moment. We have record levels of reported burnout. We have record levels of chronic stress. We have not made a dent in our mental illness stats despite all the research and resources that have been thrown at it in the last few years. We still have one in five of us or 20% of us in any one time in any one year with a diagnosable mental illness. And so we're still not getting that balance right of how we prioritise ourselves without fear of underperformance and without that sort of like belief or knowledge that the best thing that we can do for ourselves but also for our career, for our business, for our performance is to prioritise ourselves. And so we have close to, I think, 20 years' worth of research now that shows that if we put our happiness, our well-being, and our health first, then actually all those business KPIs that we find are so integral to our, our work or our career um, identity exponentially improve anywhere between 9 and 30%. So we're talking about things like our ability to make good decisions, problem solving, our creativity, um, improving the quality of our relationships, the accuracy of us being able to, you know, diagnose and get to the to the, the heart of what, what needs to be to be analyzed. And so a long a longish kind of story, but what I passionately care about is that well-being is a foundation not just for our lives, but also for the way that we do things as a performance advantage at, at work. Look, it's an incredible story and one that I kind of feel sad that it's it's such a big dilemma in so many corporate situations, so many uh, men and women working in these big environments, all wanting to do the best they can also to provide for their families, but also stay strong, happy and well. And it seems to be, and the word you've mentioned already is balance. And I get asked a lot, how do we create work-life balance? And I get many different answers, beautiful Fleur, on what that actually looks like. But you have just summed it up so beautifully. Is the Blueberry Institute, I just missed one piece there. So you then wound up as you were ill and recovering for those two years from that burnout, an incredible amount that you gave to that company and everything. Did you then withdraw from the workforce and did you then create the Blueberry Institute? I'd just love to understand that little pathway there where it sounds like you hit rock bottom and then somehow the phoenix rose and then created something even bigger and better from that. So when I got to what was essentially the pinnacle of my career, so I achieved CEO by the age of 35, I had shown people that not only could I navigate challenging market market conditions, but I could actually 
come out and steer a commercial result that was also a human result better than almost all of my counterparts. But the, I guess the, the lack of values, the lack of appreciation, the realisation that the way we did business was fundamentally wrong felt to me extremely hollow and I came out of that not only questioning what do I need to do for myself in terms of my health, but I also came through questioning what is it or how is it that we actually need to be to be working. So for me, um, a defining quote for me is that burnout is not an acceptable price for success. And so the Blueberry Institute very much came about as a, there are healthy and well ways of working that are also good for business and that I will be able to have more impact and be able to improve more lives and businesses by working with the companies that are ready to change and want to change and understand that there is a better way of doing things than by working within organisations that are absolutely attached to the stereotypes of these industrial age ways of of working. And it's so interesting even coming through the the global financial crisis now and listening to the arguments around hybrid working versus virtual working versus in-person working, where you're still operating from a starting theoretical type of type of basis that comes from this nine to five manufacturing era revolution expectations around the way that we do work and so we're a hundred you know a few hundred years years on and people are chronically ill businesses are not performing any better or more sustainably under those working models but we're very very slow to change and we're very very slow to adapt However, I can say I'm extremely fortunate to be working across a range of industries with organisations who do actually realise that not only is a well-being is well-being a foundation and a right for people to expect when they come to work, but realising that it provides a significant performance advantage as well. And so I'm really, really lucky to be working across industries um, such as construction. I've got banking, I work with the public service, um, Department of Veterans Affairs, manufacturing, distribution, all kinds of of different organisations. We've got some really forward-thinking CEOs that are interested in not just looking at wellbeing as as something that needs to be allocated as as, as a budget and a project, but actually understanding that wellbeing is the way we do things around here. And so the Blueberry Institute, there's two two parts to the name. The first part, blueberries, if we think about them, they're that antioxidant superfood. So it's very much around how do we breathe life and oxygen back into our organisations and the ways that we work so that people can not only enjoy coming to work again, but they're well in the organisation as well. And then the Institute part is because I'm very much interested in evidence-based practice. So there are a lot of people out there saying, hey, this is good for wellbeing or this is good for work. And there are plenty of, of coaches that have some, some experience but not necessarily the qualifications or the deep understanding behind what they're doing to bring to, to, to the market. And so 
with the Blueberry Institute, I'm bringing new, better and well ways for us to do work that have some kind of theoretical or evidence base that shows that they actually work, both for people and for our our business results as well. So powerful because so many things start off with a hiss and a roar and then can't follow through. I'm curious to understand from your perspective then the different corporations and companies that you're working with and considering this hundreds of year old nine to five mentality of working, we've noticed through COVID that people working from home, productivity sometimes for many companies went up. A lot of people have continued to work at home. But I'm now hearing that many companies are saying as of January, there'll be no more work from home. Everyone has to be back in the office. So Fleur, in my humble opinion, it doesn't sound like we've learned a lot, even though there seems to be a lot of positives around people having flexibility of sometimes working from home or being able to do the family life in between uh, the working life. I think it's so long as the work is done, does it matter where we are or could you give us or shine a light on what you think you've learned through the whole COVID experience and how corporations can do even better? As a foundational principle, one of the things that I firmly believe is that people that are well do well. And one of the things that we've seen through COVID is that even when people aren't feeling well or they are feeling insecure, they will jump through hoops to still do their best to do well. But what we're seeing is with these increases in productivity, we're also seeing increases in chronic stress, burnout and mental illness. And so what I'm finding is so many companies have been treating treating the move to working from home as something that is a Band-Aid or a temporary solution that is enabled and tolerated. We just found that we're in this situation that instead of, you know, COVID lasting for three months, it lasted to close to three years. And so a lot of people have been working from home with temporary solutions and having to put in place workarounds as opposed to companies really embracing what is it that we can do to really maximise the the benefits, whether it be systems, the way that we manage, the way that we catch up, the way the way that we the way that we work together. Some organisations, I think, are getting a better balance with hybrid work, so a combination of in person and and virtual. But one of the things that I'm hearing is is people are trying to push people to to come back to work with this almost like this industrial age nine to five mindset that says we can't have cultural, we can't have good culture unless people are face-to-face in the office all of the time. Now, the reality is is that most of our work doesn't actually require face-to-face time And when people are coming into the office and they're just doing what they're able to be doing at home and they're not using this FaceTime or this office time to create the connections, to provide a sense of belonging, to instill what the company vision and values are, all we're doing is disintegrating culture as opposed to building culture. And so for me, culture is something that we choose. It's the values that we live. It's the behaviours that we promote and we tolerate 
and it's the way that we treat people. And so for me, for example, I now have a team of eight. My business manager is based in country Victoria. My EA is based on the Gold Coast and everyone else is somewhere in between. And I would describe myself as having one of the best best possible working cultures of any organisation that I've either been a part of creating or steering or leading, and none of us have actually worked in an office together at one time or for any period of time. And when I say that I have a great culture, what I'm talking about is that within our team we have psychological safety. And what that means is is when someone's having a great day, we celebrate with them and we're on the phone to each other straight away wanting to share our good news. We want to share what's going on for us, both personally and professionally. But also when we're not having great days, we can also call someone at work and say, hey, I'm not having a great day, I need a bit of extra help here or I need or I need some time out. And so when I talk about my little team of eight people, Three of us have mental illnesses. Two of us have physical disabilities. Two of us have family members that require extra care. We are not all well at the same time. At any point in time, you'll probably find one or two of us that isn't in good shape and that's needing support from the rest of the team but we all pitch in we all care we're flexible and fluid so this is the looking after each other and putting that respect and well-being at the center of everything that we do but also from a business perspective our business has grown 30 percent year on year through covid our largest client we've had since the business started 11 years ago and our work with them grows year on year. When we have conversations about our, with our clients around what programs they need to support their leaders and to support the skill sets that our leaders need to be able to not only survive but thrive in such a challenging environment, the conversation is very much around Flo, what is it that you are hearing from our people? What do we need to acknowledge and how do we support those skills? So we have high trust, high performance and high growth as well as high well-being. And so when I talk about well-being, it doesn't mean that we are 100% well or 150% at maximum energy health or wellbeing capacity at any one time, it means that we have the culture and the capacity to make sure that when people are down just as much as they are up, that they're cared for and we're all pulling together as a team. Can I just acknowledge you for this? And sometimes I know that leaders of corporations, companies or beautiful businesses that have evolved have often themselves walked through the trenches, have often hit rock bottom, have often been in your situation burnt out and unwell to actually see the pitfalls and the problems. So first up, I just want to acknowledge you for 
walking the path and then crawling and perhaps even struggling yourself at times to crawl out the other side. And I just want to, you know, if we're in the same room, high five you for that, because for a lot of people that burnout can lead to, you know, long-term dissatisfaction and a disabling of someone's incredible skills and techniques to not be used because they just cannot face it. So first of all, high five to that. Secondly, It sounds to me then, having gone from that situation, the way in which you can support other people not to walk that same path is to be creating the Blueberry Institute. Now, a lot of the listeners of the Self Love podcast aren't necessarily entrepreneurs or own business owners, but they do work within corporations. Is this something that they could pitch to the managers of their corporation to have someone like the Blueberry Institute to come in? Or is this also for someone that is listening to this, maybe their husband or maybe their wife is a top entrepreneur, a business owner who is working incredibly long hours? Does it matter the size of the corporation or which angle we're coming from in which the Blueberry Institute can support us? And if so, how can people do this? We help it to two levels. So for 2024, we're launching a new individual mentorship program for I guess exactly that leaders or executives that are reflecting on the way that they're working and they want to do better both for themselves their personal relationships and also their impact from a business perspective and this is called the the well leader so very very happy to be speaking with individuals around how to create a healthy and resilient life that is within the context of working well and being well. We also do, and our heartland is very much around working with executive teams, leadership teams, and also management groups across organisations to develop a common language and way of doing things around here which comes from a foundation where we're not just hearing about this technical term called psychological safety and we're not just bandying around resilience as something that, you know, someone needs to go and figure out when they're not travelling so well, but actually training and incorporating these as life skills and working skills as to how we can better relate as teams, how we can be making sure that we're in good shape as well as promoting good results together as a team across organisations. So we're positively impacting not just how each individual is, but, you know, our culture as we move forward as well. So I have the well leader and also our healthy high performance programs that have different focuses depending on where your organisation's at. So sometimes we'll start with mental health conversation basics for organisations that are, are struggling with crises. More often than not, we'll come in by talking about how we can put in place those foundational resilience skills that are going to support us to better manage our stress, to cope with the pressure as we go along, to be able to navigate adversity healthily together as opposed to erupting into politics, but more importantly, how we sustain our energy on a daily basis. So you are very welcome, or I should say listeners are, are very welcome to, to um, book in a call or send me, send me an email or a text or a message via um, Instagram 
to say, hey, this is what's going on, what do, what do you think? So we're very much around creating opportunities to meet where you are at and to support you in making those those small steps to the larger changes that you'd like to have. Now, this is just so powerful. And as we head into 2024, I just think this could not have come at a better time. For those of you listening to this who think, wow, this is a big jump or I need to do this, you've also written books that are just so fantastic. I'm very honored to say I have a copy of both of your books, Leading Wellbeing and Resilience Recipes. Could you talk to us a little bit about these powerful books that I consider, because I'm a busy person, it's amazing when I got these, I wanted to read both of them cover to cover before I got to talk to you. But what I found was so awesome is that they're very easy to dip into, both of them. And it's amazing. I don't, I know this is probably sounding a bit woohoo, but I actually asked questions and then figured that I could open the book to the page that I needed to. And what was powerful in doing this in your Resilience Recipes book, I opened up and the first page when I asked, what is the key thing I need to understand right here, right now for me in this moment? And there's, there's no accidents, but the page I opened to was page 55 in Resilience Recipes. And there was three resilience ingredients, emotional agility, mental adaptability, and optimizing my energy, which is kind of summarizing what you've been talked about, talking about. And the beautiful point of overlap was personal resilience. Now, there's no accidents with your beautiful books. And can you just take us through, because that was something I needed right in that moment, but so, can you talk us through both books and also how they could uh, give someone maybe a preface into the work that you're doing, but also there's so many gems, Fleur, in both of them. Could you explain both of them to us and how we can get a copy of these? Because this could be a beautiful thing for people to read over Christmas and New Year to then take into 2024. I absolutely love that, um, Kim, and I'm also a big, big believer in that the quotes and the messages and the wisdom that you need at any point in time will pop up and present it if we are open to, you know, see, seeing where those messages are and we, we create some, some space to, to look for, look, look for the, the key Key things that are, that are going to support us. And so I deliberately wrote resilience recipes first and I describe resilience recipes as your personal curated evidence-based guide to figuring out what well-being means to you and just two to three small steps that you can take that will have an exponential improvement in terms of your, your daily life. And it's deliberately small and I'm, I've also written in a way that if you just read the first two chapters, you'll be able to do a personal diagnostic and then dip into whichever chapter and whichever strategy, um, you know, resonates with you at the time. So it's very much created as a choose your own adventure. So for those who are super busy that just want a couple of quick things that will work, two chapters plus a strategy. For those of you who want to read the book from cover to cover, it is it is written in a sequential sequential way, and there's little activities and exercises at the, you know, all the all the way through each chapter. And so, by the time you finish the book, you'll actually have your own personal wellbeing plan and a set of strategies that are suited to you. And so, one of the things about wellbeing and actually resilience as well as terms is there's actually no one size fits all definition. 
And so one of the things I want to share with you is, is the best definition of well-being is actually yours. Because what's important to me, my well-being is going to be completely different to you, Kim, which is going to be completely different to, you know, someone who's starting their career with no family ties versus, you know, someone who's starting a new family. So for some people will be prioritising work, other people will be prioritising sleep, other people will be prioritising family. And so if we are not consciously deciding what our own definition of well-being is, we're going to be at the mercy of everyone else. And then we wonder why our energy is leaking all over the place because we're busy running around after everyone else without actually having that core, calm foundation or centred foundation, I think is probably a better descriptor, for, for ourselves. And so Resilience Recipes is perfect for summer summer break reading reflecting on your you know the the year that's gone past and maybe you know encouraging you to think about a little bit of a reset how do I want to be how do I want to show up how do I want to feel in the new year not just what do I want to do and what 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 are my goals so resilience recipes has come out of the corporate training programs that I do around those fundamental personal resilience and team resilience programs that I do. And you are able to to buy the book um, off Amazon or Booktopia, but also on my website, blueberryinstitute.com. I've also got a personal wellbeing planner. So plenty of people have written to me and said, I don't want to write in my book. I don't want to do the exercises in my book. I want to keep it clean. So I've actually got a, a separate planner so you can print it off and scribble on it if you're a scribbler, or it's um, one of those editable PDFs where you can, can type in your responses and, and have it as your, as your own planner to, to, support, to support the book. And so how Resilience Recipes came about was I had so many leaders and particularly, I guess, leaders and busy managers at work that were burning out themselves but saying, hey, Fleur, I need to find ways to better support my team who aren't coping with all this change. And one of my big things is, is we need to learn to put our own oxygen masks on first. And so care for your team starts with care for yourself. So Resilience Recipes is very much around how do we make sure we've got the foundations of putting our own oxygen mask on first. Leading Wellbeing, I just launched in August of 2023, and that is very much around I know that there are people struggling in my team. I know that people aren't okay but I don't know how to approach them. I don't know what's appropriate to say at work and what's not. Um, I'm not a mental health expert. I'm not a psychologist. I really am feeling very inadequate and helpless when it comes to looking after my team wellbeing. And so leading wellbeing, same thing again. There's a diagnostic in the first couple of chapters where you can understand what are the things that you need to be aware of when it comes to wellbeing and supporting mental health and psychological safety at work. So taking some of these big terms and breaking them down into everyday language. Then there's a little diagnostic where you can go through and rate yourself on what are the aspects of this that I feel comfortable with? What are the aspects of this that I really feel like are, are gaps in my knowledge and my skill set? And then same thing again, you can sort of like turn to the chapters within the book that are going to be most relevant to, to what you need at that that point in time and I provide for you a step-by-step conversation framework around how do you prepare to speak to someone that you're concerned about how do you actually ask the are you okay question 
And big tip for you, are you okay is great for a campaign, but it's actually not great as a check-in question. And then how to respond in an empathetic but appropriate way in a professional working environment when you don't have specific mental illness education to support someone that is not travelling so well. And the good news is that every single one of us can have a conversation that counts that has the potential to transform someone's life without being an expert, just showing up as a kind and caring human being. Oh, I just think they're just brilliant and they're so easy to read. And with your background, your knowledge, your experience, you actually have condensed it all into the key things that really are the most important. And from my perspective, what I've taken from both of them is that to have your health and performance both on a trajectory of improving, we need to feel safe, well and strong, which is what you articulate so clearly in both books. One thing that I'd really love you to just expand a little bit on, this is the self-love podcast. It's almost like well-being and self-love could be integrated. What is your definition of self-love? Is it different to your definition of well-being? Could you give us a little brief understanding? And do you think self-love, which is bandied around and maybe given a little bit of a hard time and maybe sounds a little bit woohoo, but ultimately it is about prioritizing oneself from what I'm hearing. Could you give me your interpretation of self-love? And is it as important as well-being or are they on a path? For me, self-love is the foundation that we need internally and within ourselves that is going to enable us to prioritise and put boundaries around well-being. And so I think self-love and well-being are very much intertwined, but they do have their own specific flavour and characteristic. And so for me, self-love has been a journey It's certainly been a struggle. I grew up in a household where everyone else's needs mattered and my voice wasn't welcome. I worked my way through my classic corporate career where I was continuously told I was too young, I hadn't spent enough time in this job, my ideas, my input didn't matter because I was young, female, different, all of these, all of these, you know, different adjectives. And so I had a lot of time being conditioned that who I was and what my needs were didn't matter. And for me, I think unless we develop a healthy self-love, a healthy relationship within ourselves, we are way more susceptible to burnout and we are more likely instead of understanding what we need in terms of well-being and prioritising that, to be prioritising everybody else's at the expense of our own happiness and the things that we count. And the definition of self-love that I live with, so this has come from my yogi teacher training and my yogi journey, so it's been part of my healing journey, came from my original teacher, Peter Clifford, in a yoga therapy style of yoga and called anahata yoga so kim you might like this one anahata means heart or love so my training that i chose to do on a personal level to bring myself back from burnout and to find myself 
was actually a form of heart-based yoga and the definition of self-love that Peter gifted to me and it took me a long time to feel it but I certainly used it as my mental mantra until the rest of my heart and and soul picked it up is self-love is very much around your ability to love yourself exactly as you are to accept the things that you can't change and to be patient with the things that you do want to change. So powerful and just so poignant given our conversation today. And I do absolutely love any heart-centered work. I do believe in your world of understanding that corporate and heart-centered work can actually be together. And I love the fact that even though you had to experience burnout and mental illness for that period of time, which I, I am sorry for, I'm also grateful for because it's also given you to us in a way that we can use your experiences for our own selves. The other thing that I really do want to say is that whether you're in the corporate world or not, this work, your teachings actually cross over into our personal relationships, running of the home, being a strong family member. So anyone listening to this, if you don't feel like you're in the corporate world, I can almost assure you this platform, this model can sit very much on top of our own personal lifestyle and relationships. Is that a fair comment? And would you recommend that anybody doing any of your programs, the crossover is, I wouldn't say blurred, but it's intertwined. Would you agree? Absolutely. What we're teaching, training, coaching and mentoring in in our programs are essentially life skills. Just because of my background and my experiences in the corporate world, I tend to bring a work lens to it because that is, I guess, you know, my my passion wanting to improve the way that we work. But when we look at resilience recipes, every single one of those strategies and skill sets that I walk us through are equally applicable to us outside of work or when we're facing challenges in life in general. In, in general. So emotional agility skills are our ability to recognise when our stress temperature is rising and be able to diffuse our stress response to be able to create space to act rather than react. And mental adaptability skills help us to open our perspectives and see alternative ways of dealing with challenge and adversity that mean that we're able to navigate a path through as opposed to going down for the count, like I did with my burnout, for example. And then the optimising energy, it's the things that we do every day. How do we start our day to make sure that we have the energy, the priorities, the connections, the health practices in place that mean that whatever shows up for us during the day, the week or the the year, we have the energy and the enthusiasm to be able to embrace it as opposed to going, oh, my goodness, I've already got so much on my plate, I can't possibly take advantage of this because I'm just overwhelmed and, and I can't deal with it. So we are talking about essential life skills 
just my, you know, corporate experience means that I bring a work-oriented lens to the way that we can cope better or improve better or move ourselves forward in a healthy way, which means that work is a source of well-being for us as opposed to a source of stress. And, you know, the other thing too, even in the book, uh, your latest one, Leading Wellbeing, I know that the strategies that you talk about, and again, I briefly read over this book, took so much from it, was your beautiful self-assessment and the areas of which we can use that are so useful to help us to focus on first. And I love the way you take us through a very easy, step-by-step, simplistic way of honoring that, which is to prepare, ask, listen, empower, and then based on performance, how we can balance that care. I just think it's really incredible because I personally, as I was reading these things, could also see how they're so powerful in a relationship. So how we can prepare better in our relationships, ask better questions, start conversations, how we can listen, show empathy and understanding, empower action or responsibility within a family or relationship issue. And then how do we perform and how do we have a high-performing, well-balanced relationship? I just want people to know that you could apply any of these in a business sense, but also a personal sense. And I could highly recommend both books. And if I was going to get one, I'd recommend that you get both. And then I'd even recommend that you get two sets because you won't want to pass these books on. I've got air tags hanging out of them and highlighters already in them. So I think you'll want to want to get two copies if you want to share this with people. I didn't check, my love, if these are on Audible. Are both these books able to be listened to as well? Because that is another way that I love to read books. Oh, at this stage, they're just available via either paperback or ebook from both Amazon and Booktopia in Australia. Um, Interestingly, Resilience Recipes I only launched last year in May and I was, I guess, um, what's the word, almost like stalked or harassed to follow up with the second book pretty quickly. So I've written two books in just over 12 months and so next year will be the Audible project when it comes to translating both of those written copies into into spoken versions. No, I think that's the next step because these are these so good to listen to in the car. And on many of my long trips, my favorite thing is either podcasts or audio books. And I'd love to hear your I love books too that are read by the author just as a tip. <laughs> um, one thing, I know you and I could talk to, to each other forever, and I'm so grateful to our beautiful Louise for the introduction back in Auckland. If there was anyone that wanted to follow you, um, how could we get in touch with you? What's the best way? So for, uh, from, a, from a personal perspective and an individual perspective, um, Fleur Hayeswood on Instagram, so that's where I share I guess some of my more of my personal moments and quotes and insights and inspirations and and things like that. From a corporate perspective, I'm also very active on LinkedIn, so I have a lot of articles across the the, the press and specific strategies around things that we can do better when it comes to psychological safety or leadership or or mental well being at work. So LinkedIn, you'll get a, a lot of. Um, good, I guess, you know, tips and juicy articles that are that are great from a work-related perspective. 
Or if you jump on our website, blueberryinstitute.com, you can book in an appointment for a chat, you can message, you can email, whichever way is going to, you know, best um, suit you to have a chat and conversation around, you know, what might be going on for you and the, the kinds of things that you might might find helpful. So Fleur Hazel, Hazelwood on Instagram, it has got, the reason why I keep saying he's is because there's an E in there. And so just if anyone's looking up Fleur, just make sure it's H-E-A-Z-L-E-W-O-O-D. So just make sure you have that little E in there as well. One thing that struck out to me, beautiful Fleur, I loved this part, which was mindful or mindful. And they are incredible distinctions when the mind is full or are we practicing mindfulness? Could you just associate us for those two words and then maybe lead into your final message and favorite quote? I just wanted to let you know that I loved that distinction there of mindful or mindful, and I'd love for you to describe that. And then I'll, you know, just lead into your final message and favorite quote for us. Mindful, and when we're talking about mindful here, it's F-U-L-L, is I think how many of us exist during our day with this never-ending task list or the way I like to describe it is all of the tabs open on our devices. You know, many of us will have 20 or 30, you know, tabs open on our phone or our PC or whatever the case may be. And we're talking about a cluttered mind full of little bits of things that we're trying to remember we're trying to do we're trying to to knock off we're trying to anticipate what others need as well as get things done on our to-do list and one of the things about a full mind is is that it's exhausting so trying to juggle all of these mental balls in the air is exhausting it's draining it means we don't get to things that we need to it means we actually don't even have time to think about what it is that's most important that that we care about and it often is characterised, like the way I like to describe it is, is us sort of like running around in circles chasing our tails. We never, we never get forward or, or move forward. And so when we talk about mindful or mindfulness, it's a practice or a skill where we learn to stop and look at what is going on within our mind with the view to be able, being able to put those things down, to become less attached, to create some space and take our energy out of our head and to more calmly centre and ground, integrating our head with our heart and also our hara or or our body. And what that does, it means that we are coming from a place of centeredness. We are in touch with our values, and when so many things are being thrown at us, we're able to make the distinction between what's important and what is the noise. And so we're able to have a more choiceful day. We're able to have a more purposeful day, and we're a lot clearer on what our boundaries are and being able to say yes to the things that are important and no to the things that aren't. So beautifully put and so wonderful in the way that we can actually summarize this again from a corporate business work perspective but also a personal family relationship perspective and I just want to thank you wholeheartedly for blending the two and also with the head heart and har- harta is it hartha or harta hara, hara. 
And, well, and a heart is the heart, and yes. is our belly, which represents our body. And so I think oh, it's really love lovely that. to say head, heart, and hara. It's got a oh, beautiful. I do too, and I love the actual the way that you have blended. I know you've just come back from all of your beautiful teacher training in Bali in relationship to yoga. Many people tend to turn to yoga as a form of recovery from PTSD, uh, be that in the workplace or in their business or in the jobs that they've done. And I just think to have someone like you with your incredible education, knowledge, experience and openness to create a better, safer, more resilient, sustainable workplace just allows us to be better in the working ways in which we live our lives. Thank you so much for being on this journey, but also for sharing it. Do you have a final favorite quote, another one or anything, and then just a final message to the beautiful self-love podcast listener? I actually have a poem that really resonated with me with my yoga teacher training last week, and it is coming from that place of integration and what I really love about it is it takes us out of our mind and hopefully puts us back into more of a, an embodied place within ourselves. And so it's called This Precious Human Body. And the original author is Jay Song Papa, who was a 14th century Buddhist monk and scholar. But it was amended by Viveka in 2013 to create some beautiful words, which I think are very, very real and meaningful for us today. So I'd like to, to share this, this gift of a poem with everyone here. The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest gem. Cherish your body. It is yours this one time only. The human form is one with difficulty. It is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore recall your inspiration and aspiration. Resolve to make use of every day and night to realise them. Isn't that just so beautiful? And doesn't that just summarize everything you're about and everything that you do? Fleur Hazelwood, thank you so much for being on the Self Love Podcast. I know that everybody will definitely appreciate your messages, but also it's such a poignant reminder of the importance of mind, body, heart, soul integration and embodiment of having a holistic approach to whether it's work, life or relationships. And I just want to thank you again for being such a trailblazer in this field and for also giving us permission to be on the learning pathway and to do it with beautiful strength and mental health mastery and body awareness and integrating all of it into our everyday life. Thank you so much for being on the Self Love Podcast. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you about the importance of self-love and self as being the centre of, of, of our lives and not only being something that's okay but something that is important to prioritise. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Self Love Podcast. Be sure to write a review and share the love with your friends and family and head over and visit Kim and her team at 28.com. 
That's the word 20 and the number 8.com. Take good care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.